Section 9 of On the Trail, an Outdoor Book for Girls. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Scientific Methodist. On the Trail, an Outdoor Book for Girls by Lena Beard. Section 9. Chapter 8. Little Foes of the Trailer. Poisonous Insects, Reptiles, and Plants. Insects. My first experience with wood ticks, jiggers, and Jersey mosquitoes was during the summer we spent at Bayville, near Toms River, New Jersey. In many ways, Bayville, with its sand, its pines, its beautiful wood roads, and rare wild flowers, is an interesting and attractive place. The salty air is fine when the thermometer is self-respecting and keeps the mercury below 90 degrees in the shade, but the oak underbrush harbors wood ticks, the blackberry bushes cover you with jiggers, the woods are full of deer flies, and the vicious mosquito, whose name is Legion, is everywhere where he is not barred out. Wood Ticks I had been told of the ticks that infest the forests of the south, had heard blood-curdling stories of how they sometimes bury themselves entire in the flesh of animals and men and have to be cut out, and my horror of them was great. In reality, I found them unpleasant enough, but, as far as we were concerned, comparatively harmless. The wood tick is a small, rather disgusting-looking creature which, in appearance and size, resembles the common bedbug. It fastens itself upon you without your knowledge, and you do not feel it even when it begins to suck your blood. But something generally impels you to pass your hand over the back of your neck, or cheek, where the thing is clinging, and, feeling the lump, you pull it off and no great harm done. The tick is supposed always to bury its head in the flesh, and it is said that if the head is left in when the bug is pulled off, an ugly sore will be the result. We had no experience of that kind, however, nor, in our hurry to get rid of it, did we stop to remove the bug scientifically by dropping oil on it, as Kephart advises, but just naturally and simply, also vigorously, we grasped it between thumb and forefinger and hastily plucked it off. The effect of the bite was no worse on any of our party than that of the Jersey mosquito. Often your friends will see a tick on you and tell you of it even while they have several, all unknown to themselves, decorating their own countenance. The name by which science knows this unlovely bug is Ixodes leech. Jigger, red bug, mite. The tiny mite called by the natives jigger and red bug is more annoying than the wood tick, one reason being that there are so many more of him. He really does penetrate the skin, and his wanderings under the surface give one the feeling of an itching rash which covers the body. You won't see the jigger, he is too small, but if you invade his domain, you will certainly feel him. Deerfly The deerfly will bite and bite hard enough to hurt. It will drive its sharp mandibles into your skin with such force as to take out a bit of the flesh, sometimes causing the blood to flow, but the bite does not seem particularly poisonous though you feel it at the time and it generally raises a lump on the flesh. The deerfly belongs to the family of gadflies. It is larger than a housefly, and its wings stand out at right angles to its body. It will not trouble you much except in the woods. Blackfly The Adirondack and Northwoods region is not only the resort of hunters, campers, and seekers after health and pleasure, but it is also the haunt of the maddening blackfly. From early spring until the middle of July or first of August, the blackfly holds the territory, 
Then it evacuates and is seen no more until next season, when it begins a new campaign. Under the name of buffalo fly, the black fly is found in the west, where, on the prairies, it has been known to wage war on horses until death ensued. Death of the horses, not of the fly. It is a small fly about one-sixth of an inch long, thick-bodied, and black. It is said to have broad silvery circles on its legs, but no one ever stops to look at these. Its proboscis is developed to draw blood freely, and it is always in working order. The only virtue the black fly seems to have is its habit of quitting operations at sundown and leaving to other tormentors the task of keeping you awake at night. When the black fly bites, you will know it, and it will leave its mark. When it does leave, which must generally be by your help, for it holds on with commendable persistence. If you would learn more of this charming insect, look for Simulium molestum in a book which treats the subject scientifically. Noceum, punky, midge. There is another pest of the north woods which the guides call the noceum. It is a very diminutive midge resembling the mosquito in form and viciousness, but so small as to be almost invisible. Night and day are the same to the noceum, its warfare is continuous and its bite very annoying, but it disappears with the black fly in July or August. By September the mountains and woods are swept clear of all these troublesome things, except at times and in some places the ever-hungry mosquito, which will linger on for a last bite in his summer feast. The only way to relieve the irritation caused by the bites of these pests, including the mosquito, is to bathe the affected parts with camphor, alcohol, or diluted ammonia. When there are but one or two bites, they may be touched with strong ammonia, but it will not do to use this too freely, as it will burn the skin. Gnats In the mountains of Pennsylvania, the most troublesome insects I found were the tiny gnats that persist in flying into one's eyes in a very exasperating fashion. They swarm in a cloud in front of your face as you walk and make constant dashes at your eyes, although to reach their goal brings instant death. It is not much trouble to get one of these gnats out of your eye when it once gets in. All that is necessary is to take the eyelashes of the upper eyelid between your thumb and first finger and draw the upper eyelid down over the under eyelid. The under eyelashes sweep the upper lid clear and the rush of tears that comes to the eye washes the insect out. Bees, Wasps, and Yellow Jackets While honeybees and wasps can make themselves most disagreeable when disturbed, you can usually keep away from beehives and bee trees as well as from the great gray papery nests of the wasp, but the hornets or yellow jackets have an uncomfortable habit of building in low bushes and on the ground where you may literally put your foot in a hornet's nest. They are hot-tempered little people, these same hornets, as I have reason to know. Twice I have been punished by them, and both times it was my head they attacked. Once I found them, or they found me, in a cherry tree, and the second time we met was when I stepped in their nest hidden on the ground. Their sting is like a hot wire pressed into the flesh. When angered they will chase you and swarm around your head, stinging whenever they can, but they may be beaten off if some friendly hand will wield a towel or anything else that comes handy. If the stings of any of these stinging insects are left in the wounds, they should be taken out with a clean needle or clean knife blade. In any case, mix some mud into a paste and plaster it on the parts that have been stung. If you are in camp and have with you a can of antiphlogistine, use that instead of the mud. It is at least more sightly and is equally efficient in reducing inflammation. Various things have been devised as protection against insect torments. 
One is a veil of net to be worn over the hat. You will find this described in Chapter 4 under the heading of Personal Outfits. Dopes. Then there are dopes to be rubbed over the face, neck, and hands. The three said to be the best are Nesmuk's dope, Breck's dope, and H.P. Wells' bug juice. There is also a Rexel preparation which, I am told, is good while it stays on, but will wash off with perspiration. Nesmuk's dope. In giving the recipe for his dope, Nesbuk says that it produces a glaze over the skin and that in preventing insect bites he has never known it to fail. This is the dope. Pine tar, 3 ounces. Castor oil, 2 ounces. Oil of pennyroyal, 1 ounce. Simmer all together over a slow fire and bottle. This is sufficient for four persons for two weeks. Brex dope. Pine tar, 3 ounces olive or castor oil, two ounces, oil of pennyroyal, one ounce, citronella, one ounce, creosote, one ounce, camphor, pulverized, one ounce, large tube of carbolated Vaseline. Heat the tar and oil and add the other ingredients. Simmer over slow fire until well mixed. The tar may be omitted if disliked or for ladies' use. Breck tells us that his dope was planned to be a counter-irritant after being bitten as well as a preventer of bites. H.P. Wells Bug Juice Olive oil, half a pint. Creosote, one ounce. Pennyroyal, one ounce. Camphor, one ounce. Dissolve camphor in alcohol and mix. Any dope must be well rubbed in on face, neck, ears, and behind ears, hands on the backs, wrists and arms, but be very careful not to get it in your eyes. Smudges. Smudges are said to afford relief in camp, but my own experience has been that the insects can stand them better than I. A smudge is made by burning things that make little flame and much smoke. Dead leaves, not too dry, will make a fairly good smudge, but a better way is to burn damp cedar bark or branches on piles of hot coals taken from the campfire and kept alive at different sides of the camp. The accounts of extreme suffering caused by insect bites come from unusually sensitive people. All people are not affected alike. Two persons from one camp will tell entirely different stories of their experience with insects. The best way to encounter these, as all other annoyances, is to protect yourself as well as you can and then, without whimpering, make the best of the situation. All the pests described will not fall upon you at once, and, taken singly or even doubly, you will manage to survive the ordeal. If the pleasure of the trail did not overbalance the pain, there would be fewer campers to relate their troubles. Snakes The bite of a poisonous snake is by all means to be avoided, and the point is, you almost always can avoid it. With all the snakes in the United States, Dr. William T. Hornaday, director of the Zoological Park of New York City, tells us that out of 75 million people, not more than two die each year of snake bites. Snakes are not manhunters. They will not track you down. They much prefer to keep out of your way. What you have to do is to keep out of theirs. In a region where poisonous snakes abound, it is well to wear khaki leggings as a protection in case you inadvertently step too near and anger the creatures, for in such cases they sometimes strike before you have time to beat a retreat. According to Dr. Hornaday, the poisonous snakes of North America are the rattlesnake, water moccasin, copperhead, sonora coral snake, harlequin snake.
rattlesnakes. The rattlesnake appears to vary in color and markings in the different localities where it is found, and there are 14 or 15 varieties, but all carry the rattles, shake them warningly, and coil before they strike. The rattlesnake does not want to fight, and if you keep at a safe distance it will glide off in another direction, but it is safest not to venture within striking distance, which is said to be two-thirds the length of the snake, even if the snake has not coiled, for it moves quickly and strikes like a flash. The rattles are at the extreme end of the tail and are composed of horny joints. The sound of the rattle is much like the humming of a locust, cicada. Rattlesnakes are often found sunning themselves on large rocks, and stone quarries are the chosen winter quarters where the whole colonies assemble. They are also found, during the summer, among underbrush and in stubble fields, where they probably go to hunt field mice and other small mammals. Banded Rattlesnake The mountains of Pennsylvania are a favorite resort of the rattlesnake, but, though I have passed many summers in Pike County, famous for its snakes, the only live one I ever saw in that locality was in a box at Rowland Station. The men of our party occasionally killed one and brought it to camp as a trophy, but one of our weekend guests spent most of his time hunting the rattler that he might take its skin back to the city, yet without success. It is the banded rattlesnake that is usually found in Pennsylvania. The color is yellowish, and it is marked with irregular wide bands of dark brown. Sometimes the snake is almost black, and it is thought that it turns dark with age. Diamond Rattlesnake the rattlesnake marked in diamond patterns of gold outline on brown is of the south and is oftenest found in Florida. This is a very large snake, and closely allied to it is the Texas rattlesnake, which is the same in markings and color, but paler, as if faded out. Massasauga The Massasauga is the rattlesnake occasionally found in the swamps from western New York to Nebraska, but it is rare. Its color is light brown with patches of dark brown its entire length. Copperhead. The copperhead is not a rattler, though its vibrating tail amid dry leaves will sometimes hum like one. This is also true of the black snake. Its bite is very poisonous. It is found amid rocks and in the woods, and is at home from New England and the Atlantic coast west to Indiana and south to Texas. This snake is seldom more than three feet long. Its color is light reddish-brown with bands of rich chestnut which are narrow on the back and wide at the sides. The underpart is whitish with dark spots on the abdomen. The head is generally coppery in color, but not always. In Texas, the colors of the copper head are stronger, the bands and head are decidedly reddish, and the bands have narrow white borders. Harlequin Snake and Coral Snake The Harlequin Snake and the Coral Snake are so similar in color and in habits, one description for both will answer our purpose. They are southern snakes, beginning in southern Indiana and extending south. They are quite poisonous, but of such retiring habits as hardly to be classed as dangerous. Most of their time is spent hidden under the sand and in the ground, but when they do come out their colors are so brilliant as not to be mistaken. On the harlequin snake the colors are bright coral red, yellow, and black, which alternate in stripes that encircle the body. Its head is always banded with a broad yellow stripe. The coral snake is much the same in color, and only a close observer would notice the difference. The coral snake is also found in Arizona. Water Moccasin, Cottonmouth The water moccasin is ugly, and ugly all the way through. 
Its deadly viciousness is not redeemed by any outward beauty. Its average length is three and a half feet, though it is occasionally longer. Its unlovely body is thick and the color of greenish mud. The sides are paler and have wide blackish bands. There are dark bands from the eyes to the mouth, and above them there are pale streaks. The top of the head is very dark. The abdomen is yellow with splashes of brown or black. Heavy shields overhang the eyes and give a sinister expression to their angry glare. When suddenly approached, the moccasin opens wide its white-lined mouth, and one then understands why it is called cottonmouth. This snake does not coil before it strikes, but vibrates its tail slowly and watches its prey with mouth open. The moccasin is decidedly a southern snake, and girls of the south know that its home is along the edges of bayous and in the swamps. It is frequently seen with its head and a small part of its body out of the water while the rest is submerged, but at times it will be found on a water-soaked log or on underbrush and low boughs of trees that overhang the water. The bite is very poisonous. Other Snakes There are many other snakes in the United States, but they are not venomous. Here is one thing to remember. You need never fear a snake found in this country which has lengthwise stripes that is, stripes running from head to tail. Daniel C. Beard tells me that he has learned this from observation, and Raymond L. Dittmars, curator of reptiles in the New York Zoological Park, agrees with him. While the lengthwise striped snakes are harmless, others not striped in this way are harmless too. The black snake, though he looks an ugly customer and, when cornered, will sometimes show fight, is not venomous and his bite is not deep. It is, therefore, wanton cruelty to kill every snake that crosses your path simply because it happens to be a snake. Kephart, in his book of Camping and Woodcraft, says, in regard to identifying the poisonous snake, quote, The rattlesnake, copperhead, and cottonmouth are easily distinguished from all other snakes, as all three of them bear a peculiar mark, or rather a pair of marks that no other animal possesses. This mark is the pit which is a deep cavity on each side of the face, between the nostrils and the eye, sinking into the upper jawbone. If, when one has been bitten and the snake killed, an examination is made of its head, it can be ascertained immediately whether the snake was venomous, and in this way unnecessary fright may be avoided. Beaded Lizard, Gila Monster The only other venomous reptile found in the United States is the beaded lizard, called Gila Monster, Unless you visit the desert regions of Arizona and New Mexico, you will not be apt to run across this most interesting, though poisonous, reptile. The Gila monster looks very much like a unique piece of Indian beadwork, with its fat body and stubby legs covered with bright-colored bead-like tubercles, which form almost a Navajo pattern. Its length is about 19 inches, and its beads are colored salmon, flesh pink, white or yellow, and black. Though it has the appearance of being stuffed with cotton, it is really formidable and very much alive. Its jaws are strong. When it bites, it holds on like a bulldog, and there is no way to force it to open its mouth except to pry the powerful jaws apart. While otherwise slow of movement, it will turn quickly from side to side, snapping viciously. The inside of the Gila's mouth is black, and when angry, it opens it wide and hisses. Treatment for Snake Bites if the unlikely should chance to happen and one of your party is bitten by a poisonous snake, first aid should be given immediately, and if a physician is within reach, he should be summoned as quickly as possible. 
Much depends, however, upon what is done first. Anyone can administer the following treatment, and it should be done without flinching, for it may mean the saving of a life. 1. As soon as the person is bitten, twist a tourniquet very tightly above the wound, that is, between the wound and the heart, to keep the poison as far as possible from entering the entire system. 2. Slash the wound or stab it with a clean knife blade and force it to bleed copiously. If there is no break in the skin or membrane of your mouth or lips and no cavity in any of your teeth, suck the wound to draw out the poison. 3. Give a stimulant in small doses at frequent intervals to stimulate the heart and lungs and strengthen the nerves, but avoid overdoing this, for the result will be harmful. 4. If you have with you an antivenomous serum, inject it as directed by the formula that accompanies it. Tie a loose bandage around the affected member, a handkerchief, neck scarf, or even a rope for a tourniquet, to check circulation, as described in Chapter 12 on accidents. Every little while loosen the tourniquet, then tighten it again, for it will not do to stop the circulation entirely. All authorities do not advise sucking the wound, but it is generally done, for with a perfectly sound and healthy mouth there is no danger, as the poison enters the system only by contact with the blood. Some writers advocate cauterizing the wound with a hot iron, but whatever is done, do quickly, and do not be afraid. Fear is contagious and exceedingly harmful to the patient. Remember that a snake bite is seldom fatal, and that a swollen arm or leg does not mean that the case is hopeless. Poisonous Plants There are two kinds of poisonous plants, those that are poisoned to the touch, and those that are harmless unless taken inwardly. Both may be avoided when you learn to identify them. Poison Ivy We are apt to think that everyone knows the common poison ivy, but that some people are not familiar with it was shown when one beautiful autumn day a young woman passed along our village street carrying a handful of the sprays of the vine, gathered probably because of their beautiful coloring. Noticing that she was a stranger, no doubt from the city, and realizing the danger she was running of poisoning herself or someone else, we hurriedly caught up with her and gave first aid to the ignorant in a few forceful remarks. The result was that, without a word, the young woman simply opened her hand, dropped her vines on the walk, and hurried off as if to escape a pestilence. We were left to close the incident by kicking the stuff into the street that some other equally uninformed person might not be tempted to pick it up. If you do not know the poison ivy, remember this. It is the three-leaved ivy. Its leaves always grow in triplets, as shown in illustration. The leaves are smooth, but not glossy. They have no teeth, but are occasionally notched. Sometimes the plant is bushy, standing a foot or two high. Again, it is trailing or climbing. It loves fence corners and big rocks to clamber over. It will also choose large trees for support, climbing up to their tops. The flowers are whitish, and the fruit is a pretty green-gray berry, round and smooth, which grows in scant clusters. Poison ivy is found through the country from Maine to Texas and west to South Dakota, Utah, and Arkansas. Some people are immune to ivy poison and, happily, I belong to the fortunate ones. Many persons are poisoned by it, however, and it may be that fear makes them more susceptible. On some, the painful burning eruption is difficult to cure. Poison Oak The poison oak closely resembles the poison ivy and is sometimes called by that name but its leaves are differently shaped, being oval in outline with a few coarse, blunt teeth. They are also thicker and smaller than the ivy leaf. 
The poison oak is plentiful in cool uplands and in ravines, and is general throughout the Pacific coast from Lower California and Arizona to British America. Poison sumac, or swamp sumac. Another member of the same family is the poison sumac. They are all three equally poisonous and act by contact. The poison, or swamp, sumac is a high, branching shrub closely resembling the harmless species which grow on high, dry ground. The poison variety chooses low, wet places. The leaves of the poisoned sumac are compound, with from 7 to 13 leaflets growing from one stem, as the leaves of the walnut tree grow. The stalks are often of a purplish color. The leaflets are oval in shape and are pointed at the tip. The surface is smooth and green on both sides and they have no teeth. The autumn coloring is very brilliant. The flowers are whitish-green and grow in loose clusters from a stiff middle stalk at the angles of the leaves. The fruit is a gray-green berry growing in scant, drooping clusters. This gray, drooping berry is the sumac poison sign, for the fruit of the harmless sumac is crimson and is held erect in those pyramidal clusters. Witch hazel, ponds extract, is used as a remedy for all of these poisons, but it is claimed that a paste made of cooking soda and water is better. Alcohol will sometimes be effective, also a strong lye made of wood ashes. Salt and water will give relief to some. It seems to depend upon the person whether the remedy, as well as the poison, will have effect. Yellow Lady's Slipper Growing in bogs and low woods from Maine to Minnesota and Washington, southward to Georgia and Missouri, there is a sweet-scented little yellow and brown flower called the Yellow Lady's Slipper the plant of which is said to have the same effect when handled as poison ivy. This flower is an orchid. The stalk, from one to two feet high, bears a single blossom at the top, and the leaves, shaped and veined like those of the lily of the valley, grow alternately down the stem. The plant does not branch. Like the ivy, the yellow lady's slipper does not poison everyone. I know of no other wild plants that are poisonous to the touch. The following will poison only if taken inwardly. Deadly Nightshade To the nightshade family belong plants that are poisonous and plants that are not, but the thrilling name Deadly Nightshade carries with it the certainty of poison. The plant is an annual and you may often find it growing in a neglected corner of the garden as well as in waste places. It is a tall plant. The one I remember in our own garden reached to the top of a five-foot board fence. Its leaves are rather triangular in shape. They are dark green, and the wavy edges are notched rather than toothed. The flowers are white and grow in small clusters. The fruit is a berry, round, black, and smooth, with calyx adhering to it. The berry clusters grow at the end of drooping stems. This must not be mistaken for the high-bush blueberry, for to eat the fruit would be most dangerous. The antidotes for nightshade poison are emetics, cathartics, and stimulants. The poison should be thrown off the stomach first, then strong coffee be given as a stimulant. Pokeweed, Pigeonberry Pokeweed comes under the heading of poisonous plants, though its berries are eaten by birds, and its young shoots are said to be almost equal in flavor, and quite as wholesome as asparagus. It seems to be the large perennial root that holds the poison, though some authorities claim that the poison permeates the entire plant to a certain extent. The root is sometimes mistaken for that of edible plants and the young leaves for those of the marsh marigold, which are edible when cooked. It is a tall plant with a stout stem and emits a strong odor. 
you will find it growing by the wayside and in rocky places. The leaves are oblong and pointed at the tips and base. They have no teeth. The small white flowers are in clusters. The fruit is a small, flat, dark purple berry, growing in long, upstanding clusters on a central stalk. The individual stem of the berry is very short. The name inkberry was given to the plant because of the strong stain of the berry juice, which was sometimes used for ink. Pokeweed is at home in various states, Maine to Minnesota, Arkansas, and Florida. Poison Hemlock The poison hemlock is well known historically, being in use at the time of Socrates and believed to have been administered to him by the Greeks. It is quite as poisonous now as in Socrates' day, and accidental poisoning has come from people eating the seeds, mistaking them for anise seed, eating the leaves for parsley and the roots for parsnips. The plant grows from two to seven feet high. Its stem is smooth and spotted or streaked with purplish red. It has large, parsley-like leaves and pretty clusters of small white flowers which grow, stiff-stemmed, from a common center and blossom in July and August. When the fresh leaves are bruised, they give out a distinctly mouse-like odor and they are very nauseating to the taste. Poison hemlock is common on waysides and waste places in New York, West Virginia, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Ohio. It is also found in New England and Michigan, Wisconsin, Illinois, Louisiana, and California. The treatment recommended by professionals is emetics, warmth of hands and feet, artificial respiration, and the subcutaneous injection of atropine administered by a physician. Water Hemlock Water Hemlock is similar in appearance and in effect. It is found in wet places and on the borders of swamps. The remedies are the same as for poison hemlock. Jimson Weed The Jimson Weed is very common in Kentucky. I have not seen so much of it in the east and north, but it appears to grow pretty nearly over the whole United States. It is from one to five feet in height and an ill-smelling weed, though first cousin to the beautiful cultivated datura, which is a highly prized garden plant. The stem is smooth, green, stout, and branching. The flower is large, sometimes four inches long, and trumpet-shaped. There are several varieties of this weed. On some the flower is white, on others the five flaring, sharp-pointed lobes are stained with lavender and magenta. The calyx is long, close-fitting, and light green. The leaves are rather large. They are angularly oval in shape and are coarsely notched. The fruit is a prickly egg-shaped capsule which contains the seeds. It is these seeds which are sometimes eaten with serious results, and children have been poisoned by putting the flowers in their mouths. Emetics should immediately be administered to throw the poison off the stomach. Then hot, strong coffee should be given. Sometimes artificial respiration must be resorted to. In all cases of poisoning, a physician should be called if possible. The habit of chewing leaves and stems without knowing what they are should be suppressed when on the trail. It is something like going through a drugstore and sampling the jars of drugs as you pass, and the danger of poisoning is almost as great. Toadstools Unless you are an expert in distinguishing non-poisonous mushrooms from the poisoned toadstool, leave them all alone. Many deaths occur yearly from eating toadstools which have been mistaken for the edible mushrooms. End of section 9. Recording by Scientific Methodist.